This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. I posted on the YouTube community tab over 24 hours ago, and as they do every week, the comments rolled in. That's why you guys are the best. I pulled 18 of them, and I won't get to all of them. This isn't going to be a mega mailbag. This isn't going to be a particularly long mailbag. Um, but yeah, it's going to be good. Happy Asian swing, everybody. Looks like we're going to get some blockbuster matches in Beijing. That seems to be how things are shaping out in this loaded Beijing ATP 500 draw. I am watching a lot of highlights, and then later on in the week, I'm going to be watching more more full match replays. But yeah, worst time zone in the world for me. There's no doubt about it. I mean, even Australia is better for me. But uh, our friends in Asia deserve it. You know, usually it's them suffering, trying to watch tennis in these unfriendly time zones. So they deserve it. And uh, I, am, I am happy for them as tennis returns to Asia for the first time since 2019. I guess the Australian Open is, you know, January is one of the few months where if you are in that part of the world, the tennis is not at odd hours. So yeah, kind of crazy. All right. We are going to start with this very long question from Racket Talk, which has nothing to do with anything going on right now, but Racket Talk is a member. This comment got 10 likes and it's a good one. It's a good question. Uh, it is long. I'm going to skip the first part. I don't think it's necessary. All right. So I'm going to start in the second paragraph. Some articulate that Federer always had the game that was fearsome enough to beat Novak and that Novak's supposed steadiness slash lockdown style is an illusion that is being exaggerated because Federer didn't put the work in on the clutchness side and mental toughness side 
to allow the world to see that offensive genius can match sheer lockdown mentality in the biggest matches. Others say that it should actually come as no surprise to any of us that Federer lost all those big matches to Novak post-2011 because his style of play is simply riskier and harder to execute under pressure, whereas Novak is steadier and can rely on high percentage tools. Having said all this, what are your thoughts on the Federer-Djokovic rivalry overall as it pertains to my arguments above? Roger has lost 22 matches in his career, having lost match points, whereas Novak has lost fewer than three, I think. So the question here, and I think I can skip the end as well. Uh, the question here is really, uh, why, why has Djokovic been more clutch than Federer in their rivalry? Why has Novak come through more often than not in the matches that felt like 50-50 matches that were really close? And I think this is a three-part answer. I want to start just with the specifics of the history, right, in their head-to-head. -head. I think it's important to note that early on in their rivalry, at least relatively, Novak saved two match points in back-to-back -back U.S. Open semifinals 2010 and 2011. And, man, that's that's killer. That's That's a crusher. And that is a real... That's a real buildup of scar tissue from that. So I think that set the tone. That's all I'll say. You know, if you just look at the actual specifics of how it went down, when you lose back-to-back -back major semifinals against the same player, having held two match points in both, that really does set a tone for the rivalry going the direction that maybe it did from that point on, right? Second thing is you put any player next to Novak and they are likely to look somewhat unclutch, right? Djokovic is an outlier when it comes to clutch play. There's a reason he has the tiebreak numbers that he does, the deciding set numbers that he does, the record that he has in... You know, even if you you can take whatever sample size, you can take major finals and look at those numbers and they're excellent. You can look at every match he's ever played in his career and look at those same numbers and they are excellent. They are superlative. And I think something similar happened in the Sampras-Agassi rivalry. You know, Pete had a similar clutchness, similar thing to what Novak has. And he won a lot of close matches against Andre. He got the better of that head-to-head. -head. And the reaction was, oh, Agassi's not all that clutch. Agassi doesn't come up big. Doesn't play well under pressure. And I think a lot of that was, well, you put him next to Pete and it looks like that. But ultimately, what Andre has accomplished in his career, what Roger accomplished in his career, you don't get that far if you don't have good nerve management, if you don't play well under pressure, if you don't rise to the, the big occasions, you just can't. You can't have the kind of careers that they had. So that kind of leads me to the conclusion that it's not that Roger or Andre were, were subpar in this department. It's just they came up against rivals that were really abnormally good and it, it made them look a lot worse. In the, in the clutch department, I think. 
now, the third part of this pertains to your uh, the second theory that you laid out, which is simply that stylistically, Djokovic implements a game, a game style that is more conducive to quality play in high tension moments. And yeah, I do believe there's some truth to that. I think you can kind of simplify it or boil it down to this. If you are relying a little bit more on your movement versus your shot making, and again, I'm I'm oversimplifying this, but I think for the purposes of this exercise, it's gonna it's gonna work, right? Movement does not suffer as much with nerves. Yes, sometimes you'll see players whose feet get locked up because of the tension, right? Their footwork becomes kind of imprecise or they they don't take the extra steps. But I think at the very highest level, more often than not, regardless of how many how much nerves and tension is coming into play, movement is gonna be okay. And if you are not making errors, so your consistency remains at the highest level and your movement remains at the highest level, Novak is able to obviously play a really, really good tennis with those two attributes alone. Roger relying a bit more on his shot making, being the proactive attacking player that he is. Yeah, nerves just affect shot making. This isn't a Roger thing. This isn't a Novak thing. This is just a blanket statement about tennis players. Nerves affect shot making more than they affect movement. So is the guy who relied more on his shot making going to suffer in high leverage situations, potentially a little bit more than the guy who relies just more on his movement and his consistency? Yeah. Yeah, I I think so. So I I think those are, that's my three-part answer. The three reasons. You have uh, the specifics of their history, their head-to-head. You have Djokovic being just abnormally clutch. And you have the styles coming into play. I think all three. All right. Next one is from the G2E. I'm going to try to answer questions quicker on this mailbag and, and see uh, see how many I can get through. Hi, Gil. Let's talk about Dimitrov. He has had a solid year and has done consistently well at tournaments throughout the year. His Grand Slam results saw him always comfortably winning in the first two or three rounds, including good wins against Murray and Tiafo in straight sets. However, he would then ultimately lose to a top player in good form. At the Grand Slams, this includes a loss to Djokovic, a good battle with Runa at Wimbledon, where Grigor missed chances in the second set, and two losses to a resurgent Zverev. This has been the case also for the non-Grand Slam tournaments. I was lucky enough to get to see him play at Queens, where he played great tennis and lost to Alcaraz, the eventual winner. What does Dimitrov need to work on to get over the line in these matches with top players? And how long do you think it will be before he finally claims another elusive trophy? Uh, Yeah, 2017. He hasn't won a title since 2017. That's surprising. But he is having his best season in a long time, as you have laid out. Uh, If you look at the win percentage this year, he's at, what is he at? 62%. Uh, He was in the 50s last year, the 50s the year before. Uh, 2020, shortened year, doesn't really count, but he 
had a similar win percentage in 2020, but then he was in the 50s and 19. He was in the 50s and 18. Not since 2017, which was a huge year. He had his best year. He was in the 70s. Uh, but this is really his best year since 2017. He also had a good year and really good year in 2014. Yeah, a little bit of a, a resurgence. Very, very consistent. As you have also laid out, hasn't really been able to go all the way, right? Doesn't have a title. And he's not... He's not really beating players who are ranked above him. He's mostly, in fact, let, let me get let me get this stat here. Let me get the exact stat. So I'm going to sort by this year, and I am going to see. Uh, okay, against players ranked higher, he's five and twelve, and he's on a one, two, three, four match losing streak against players ranked higher than him and he's been he started the year at 28 in the world now he's up to 19 in the world it's another metric that just underscores how well he's played against wow against players ranked lower than him he is 27 and 5 this year yeah so really high marks for consistency but doesn't not really punching up above his weight look i think mentally i've never really trusted dimitrov to do a great job at beating the best. Um, and I think if you look at some of these slam matches, like there's no way he should have lost that first set against Djokovic. If my memory serves, he was in the driver's seat. But I know that that Novak really wasn't moving very well in that first set. And I know that Dimitrov's backhand absolutely imploded. And there's no way he should have lost that first set to Djokovic at the Australian Open. You mentioned that against Runa in the second set. Probably should have gone up two sets to love. Probably shouldn't have lost that that second set. But he just didn't close well. He didn't finish well. Zverev at the U.S. Open was an interesting one. I give him a, uh, mostly give him a pass for that one. Very physical first two sets. And if you weren't watching carefully or you missed the match, Grigor basically got injured in that match. In the third set and the fourth set, he just couldn't move. And he ended up losing in four. He's played Zverev a lot recently, and he just keeps losing to Sasha over and over and over again. So there's a little bit of bad draw luck there. But Dimitrov's very tough to analyze. Look, I think he's his first serve, he's been going after it a little bit more this year. I think he's been healthy throughout the season, probably one of his healthiest years in a while. And that's what's allowed him to have these con this kind of consistency. But as it pertains to, you know, how does he kind of level up? I, I don't know. It it's really hard to analyze Grigor when it comes to that because it, it always does feel quite mental. He doesn't have great killer instinct. He is not a very good closer. And sometimes he just, he just doesn't really perform when it's, uh, when it's time to when it's time to kind of close the deal in big matches so Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem uh, Reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil this episode is brought to you by AARP 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. 
a work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. All right, this one is from BS Russian, who's a member. Hi, Gil. How often in the years to come after Djokovic's retirement do you think we'll be seeing one slam winners? Do you think we'll be seeing much of them at all? If so, how long do you think this period could go on for? Yeah, no, I see zero evidence that we're going to have that kind of that kind of era. I mean, first of all, an environment that creates a lot of one slam winners is something like we saw on the WTA tour. Uh, I don't know, 2017 to 2021, right? I think it's fair to say. And then, I mean, I don't know. Vondrosova might be one this year. Who knows? Um, it, it means that there's a lack of sustained dominance at the top or a lack of sustained elite play at the top. Oh, yeah, I see zero evidence that that's coming on the men's side. I mean, you have Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, Djokovic's retirement that you're alluding to is not really, it doesn't look like it's coming in the next two, three years. I mean, who knows, right? But it's not here right now. He's still dominating. So you have Novak at the top. You have Alcaraz at the top. What does Holger Runa in 2025 look like? What does Yannick Sinner in 2025 look like, right? Is there is there any evidence that there's going to be a void of dominant uh, an elite tennis at the top of, of the men's game. There is zero, and I mean zero evidence, that that is on the horizon. None. Zip. Next one is from Nathani. I want to ask you about Matteo Berrettini. We used to view him as a consistent top 15 player who could compete with anyone, and now he's so far down the rankings, he has to go through qualifiers for some big events. Is it just injuries that have caused this slip, or is there something else that we are not realizing? Well, yeah, I think you you lead with the injury thing. It's been so stop, start, so uh, stop, start, stop, start. And look, most players, for most players, that takes a really large toll. Every time you have to go rehab an injury, you are not developing your skills technically, you are getting older, you are losing confidence, you are losing match toughness, and yeah, Berrettini hasn't, when is the last time he played six months of tennis injury-free? I think it might, I think maybe you have to go back to 2021 since he's played six months of tennis injury-free. So yeah, that's going to be a problem that's going to take its toll. I, I don't know that his forehand has really looked as dominant as it has uh, or, or it needs to look in order for Berrettini to be at his best. That's been kind of my observation this year in general. Not that it's been bad, but when Berrettini is going right, he really does have a tier one, A++ forehand that is going gonna, is gonna to dominate just as much as his serve is going to dominate. And I think that part has been missing a little bit for Berrettini this year. But also, it just hurts him that he doesn't play well on best of three hardcore. That's been the most puzzling thing, I think, for Berrettini. And you look at 
this year where he missed most of clay court season. And then he, as far as grass goes, he only got to play Wimbledon. Well, he did play Stuttgart, but he just wasn't ready to play. Uh, and he had a good run at Wimbledon. Played really, really great at Wimbledon. But then, other than that, you're looking at best of three hardcore. And, like, let me update this stat. I'm going to go to his career, sort by tour level, and go hardcore and best of three. Career record. He's a 500 player. It's unbelievable. He's 47 and 47 in his career. Best of three hardcore. And it's not like... It's not like the the numbers are skewed because when he was young, he was awful. And and now, you know, since he's become a player of a higher stature, uh, he, you know, has kind of made up for it. No, like this year, he's six and seven on best of three hard. Last year, he was 10 and eight. In 2021, which was, what, the best year of his career? He was only 10 and six. And... Uh, one, two, three of those wins were ATP Cup. I guess that, you know, that I shouldn't take away anything from that. Um, I'm just kind of looking at it. Two wins in Antalya that were really easy. I'm trying to see, like, even in 2021, best year of his career. It's not like he had a good Masters 1000 on hard. I'm, I'm looking at it. He didn't. So... That hurts him. That hurts him a lot. And it's weird for a guy who's made two U.S. Open semifinals, who's made one Australian Open semifinal, just doesn't really, has never been able to make any inroads best of three on hard. Very strange. And it's such a large part of the calendar. Our next one is from Dimitri. Hi, Gil. Hate your content. That's a curveball. We're off to a good start here. You answered my question about strength of eras several mailbags ago, and it sparked another war in the comments. You concluded that it was harder to win a major in 2013 than it is today. While I agree that the top 5 to 10 players in 2013 were better than the subset today, there's no way in heck the average top 100 player today isn't miles ahead of any previous eras. While you were correct to point out that Medi and Zverev have flaws in their game compared to the big three, compared to top players from other eras that either had rally starters for serves or Cressy-level ground strokes, Medi and Zverev are basically gods. Would love to hear your follow-up to this nuanced question. All the best. All right. Let's go sentence by sentence here, huh, Dimitri? Uh, I think... First of all, I don't remember this war in the comments. I feel like it's not a very unpopular take that it was harder to win a major in 2013 than it is today. But I digress. The first point you make is that your average top 100 player is better in 2023 than it was 10 years ago. I'm not going to argue against that. Now, is it miles better? That's almost definitely hyperbolic, but I'm not going to argue against that. I am of the belief that tennis just continues to, to get better and better and better and stronger and stronger and stronger. So I'm not going to argue that the average player is 
is not better now. But you got to remember, you got to remember what winning majors is about. It has nothing to do with the world number 30 or the world number 45 or the world number 68 or the world number 76 or the world number 89. It just doesn't have anything to do with those guys. I'm sorry. When we're looking at this question, which is how hard is it to win a major in a given I say era, but really you have to get super specific sometimes and just say like year, right? If we're looking at how hard is it to win a major in 2013, at the end of the day, it's not about the world number 45. The reason it's hard to win a major in 2013 is you're probably going to need to beat two of Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, and Rafael Nadal. And man, those are, uh, those are four players who are probably all, and I say probably because for Murray, you know, you'd have to kind of look at this, probably four top 15 players of all time, right? Like that's why it's hard to win a major in 2013. So why are we talking about the level of the average top 100 player? It just doesn't matter. Whereas in, if you were trying to win a major in 2020 or 2021 or 2022, uh, you just didn't have to contend with four now, you never have to contend with all four, right? You probably just have to beat usually two in order to win. If you look at a lot of the runs that you know Stan had or uh, the run that Del Potro had at US Open in 2009, or uh, sometimes you get away with just having to beat one, right? If you look at like Chilich 2014 or something like that. But usually you have to beat two, and that's what was so hard. That's why nobody could do it, all right? And then the second point you make is that essentially that Medvedev and Zverev compared to past generation or, or previous eras are basically gods. And you're doing that thing that I don't think you can do where you're, you're basically taking them out of context and you're imagining what you're saying like compared to Stefan Edberg, Medvedev and Zverev are gods. Is that what you're saying? Because, because of the ground strokes? Right, compared to Pat Rafter or compared to Sampras or even like uh even like Becker, is that is that what you're saying? Because again, you're just you, you gotta you gotta look at these guys within the context of their era, right? It's not fair to be like, yeah, you know, Edberg's groundies they they sucked, right? Because look, he was a servant volleyer. And that was a play style and he did it well and it was working. So you can't, you know, right now that is not a way to win on a consistent basis on the modern tour. And therefore everybody has better ground strokes. But to say like Medvedev and Zverev are just better, like a better player just because the way the game has developed, they are stronger in certain areas than those guys. Uh, it's it's not fair. I think you need to look at the context of each era and and measure a player's prowess based on their peers and in context of how the game is being played in that particular moment. So again, I think in the 80s and the 90s, yeah, if if you kind of look at it from the standpoint of did did pretty much everybody have uh, some pretty gaping weaknesses compared to, I think, what we look at today where, you know, yeah, maybe some players have really bad volleys, but they can kind of hide it, right? Um, 
yeah, that is true, but you got to understand that it was just kind of how the game was played back then, all right? So, yeah, I'm not resonating, not resonating with, with these arguments, but uh, good comment, good comment. All right, next one is from Rachel. Hi, Gil. Did you have any thoughts about Rafa's take on Djokovic in the GOAT race? Yeah, sure. I mean, Rafa said that basically that Djokovic is the best in history. He said that the, the numbers are the numbers. He said, uh, and I quote, uh, I think that with respect to titles, Djokovic is the best in history and there is nothing to discuss about that. And yeah, I mean, I don't know how many thoughts I can offer on that. Uh, it it's what I would expect him to say. It's uh, it's hard to really say anything else if you're in Rafa's position. I mean, what are you going to do? Be like, what if there were two majors on clay or something like that, right? That would just come across as bitter and salty, and that's not how Rafa wants to come across. So I wasn't really surprised by the comments. I don't think they're groundbreaking. And, you know, we've gotten to a point where, you know, in a way— in a way, and this is the kind of comment that taken out of context, people might you know freak out about and it could get aggregated, but listen carefully to what I'm saying here. In a way, your Rod Lavers and Bjorn Borgs and Pete Sampras's of the world have a better claim that Novak isn't the GOAT. They have a better claim than... Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, right? In some ways. And that that way is that, you know, if you are going to cast a doubt on on Djokovic's deservedness to kind of just have that label on him, uh, you have to point point to things like, all right, in a previous time, uh, athletic longevity was not what it is today. Or it was much, much harder to win across all three surfaces. These are things that you would have to point to to make an argument that, yes, Djokovic is the most accomplished player of all time, but for these reasons, to put it in the in the historical context and to look at all the factors, he's not necessarily the greatest of all time. But in order to kind of make that argument, you would have to be vouching for players of previous eras. It, you would not be able to make that particular argument from the perspective from the perspective of Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal who more or less played side by side with Djokovic. That makes sense. So yeah, if you're Rafa or if you're Roger or if you're anyone who kind of played uh, alongside Novak, that's where it becomes really hard to say anything other than like, yeah, you know, he has the numbers. And that's just how tennis is. It's that objective one-on-one -on -one sport where it's really hard to make any arguments beyond the numbers unless you are kind of going much, much further back in history and looking at certain contextual, contextual factors and circumstances that made it easier for not just Novak, but also Roger and also Rafa to accomplish what they accomplished. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Our next one is from Mr. Ed. What do you think of the trialed performance buys on the WTA? Personally, I think it's good because some players just get one decent win or run and then do nothing for nine months and still get awarded with free matches. This seems to fix that problem. I mean, so are you referring to like you don't like it when one player has a great run at a major and is therefore has a ranking that's high enough where they're getting buys? Like you don't think that that is deserved? I mean, I don't know. I think the rankings more or less just reflect how we feel about the importance of certain events. And I, I don't think that, I don't think that majors are overweighted in the ranking system, if that's really what you're getting at. Uh, but performance buys, it's been a topic that has been much discussed as of late. So um, I did want to include this, this comment at the very least, uh, you know, Elena Rybakina was very upset. She's a bit dramatic, bit dramatic about it. All right. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're super upset about performance buys, you got to look at, okay, what is the punishment here? The punishment, if you are a, a player who would be a top four seed or a top eight seed, um, all you got to do is play a first round match, right? It's not the worst thing in the world, right? You're not like, doesn't really cost you anything. Uh, but also, I don't blame Elena for not knowing, and it certainly should have been communicated to her, right? Communication on tour is really bad. There's not a lot of it. We know that. And if you're a player in Rybakina's shoes, you know, you came up, you're a young player, all right? Performance buys in the Asian swing have been a thing for a long, 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 long time, but there hasn't been an Asian swing since 2019. So it's it's really understandable that if you're in Rabakina's shoes, you show up and you're expecting to get a buy and suddenly you look at the draw and you don't have one and you're taken by surprise. I get that. But Elena aside, Rabakina aside, I just, I don't see any reason for the, the inconsistency of it. That's what I hate. How could you, how could this kind of thing just pop up at one part of the calendar where it like it should either be how it works or or not i hate the inconsistency of it i also don't like the top players being penalized for resting you know so guadalajara which is the tournament that ended up awarding certain players performance buys uh that event is not a mandatory event so a lot of the players didn't want to go from Europe to North America to Asia after the U.S. Open, right? It just felt too hard. So it's not surprising that so many of the top women skipped Guadalajara. I don't really think that they should be uh, penalized for that, punished for that, right? I'm an advocate of players taking their rest because uh, I think it's necessary for them to bring their best level to the events that they do play. And I think it, it's necessary for them to stay healthy throughout the 11 month season. I also, you know, I do like players who go deep the week before getting a break. I get the logic to that. So 
Ultimately, if you pitched performance buys to me and I kind of just had no preconceived notions of it, in some ways it would make sense, right? In some ways it's not a horrible idea, but it can't just suddenly pop up as a thing, you know, at one part of the calendar. I, I just hate that inconsistency. Also, I hate buys. Buys are the worst. They, they're the worst. Tournaments are so much better when there are no buys. And, you know, the seeds play in the first round. So much better. I hate buys. They're terrible. All right, this one, which might have been the most liked comment from Ron Robbie. Hi, Gil. Are we preparing for a... Oh, as we are preparing for a stacked Beijing card that certainly promises a lot, I would be interested to know if you have a list of your top five tournaments of all time. To be more specific, I'm talking about tournaments that you remember fondly, given the level of matches, quality slash intrigue of some matchups or a group of unique moments, etc. For example, the 2012 AO remains in my memory as an incredible tournament with four semifinal, oh, with a big four semifinals and six of the top eight seeds as Delpo as the number 11 seed in the quarterfinal. And of course, the unforgettable and heartbreaking for me final. Happy Asian swing to all. Yeah, I mean, good question. I don't want to disappoint, but I struggle. Like, I don't have a top five in my head. I'll just say right off the bat. I don't have that, like, historian brain where I'm going to remember, you know, if, like, Madrid in 2013 is this terrific tournament where all the matches at the end were fantastic. I, it's It's the kind of thing that ultimately doesn't really stay in my head very well, whereas... I I have I have other strengths, you know, but the super memory is not my strength and as a result I don't really have like a good top 5 for you, but I will say US Open in 2021 women's tournament seemed to have an unbelievable energy and was really really unforgettable. And the legacy of that tournament should not be Oh my God, just Emma Raducanu won. Like, how did that happen? That's insane. Obviously, that's going to be a big part of it, but the matches were spectacular. Layla Fernandez's run, it was just epic after epic after epic. So that sticks out to me in recent memory. Wimbledon 2018, pretty amazing until the final, right? You had... Federer-Anderson, that quarterfinal match, which went deep into the fifth. You had Nadal-Delpo, one of the best matches of the decade. Then you had Nadal-Djokovic, also one of the best matches of the decade. And probably the last 10 out of 10 Raffole match. You had Anderson-Isner in the semifinal. I mean, obviously... That match was not awesome in every way, but if anything, it was, if nothing else, it was historic. If nothing else, it was memorable. Yeah, there were, there was just a lot of moments, Wimbledon 2018, towards the end of the tournament. Then you have kind of the straight set final, Djokovic over Anderson, very forgettable. But other than that, right? Now, you get two, you know, back to back really great Wimbledons because Wimbledon 2019 was also kind of a 
unforgettable tournament. That was kind of a big three era curtain call, so to speak. That sticks in my head, obviously. You know, you had the Federer Nadal semi, you have the Federer Djokovic final. Was that the last time? Was that the last time at the end of a major it was really kind of big three mixing it up, all three of them at the same time competing against each other at the end of a major? And by the way, certainly in the case of the Djokovic Federer final, it it delivered really gripping high drama stuff that felt super consequential historically. Is that the last time? I think so. And obviously, Australian Open 2012, fantastic shout. I mean, you got three three A-plus matches to end that event in a row on the men's side, both semifinals and the final. So. All right. This one from Garage Man. Hey, Gil, you touched on it with Gruskin, but the next-gen finals have been a really good showcase for future talent. 2018 stands out the most to me currently. And through the year, I'd say five or six of the 2022 lineup has had breakout moments. Could you do a quick rundown of your thoughts on the players from the 2022 lineup now that we've seen more of them and what you want to see for them in the coming year or two? Any that really stand out to you so far? All right. Do I have this pulled up? Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, yeah. I try to open up tabs for stuff like this so I can look at all the players. All right, Musetti. Can't say that it's been a breakout year for him, but he did start to... Look, he had a very consistent clay court season. Musetti. Probably his best clay court season of his career, which is meaningful. Draper, I think coming into the season, it was all about... Is Jack going to manage to have a healthy year? We're still waiting on that, but he continues to look, you know, supremely, supremely talented when he is at his best. And, uh, you know, 2023 is no exception. You look at his win-loss record, it's 15-9. and He was uh, really good in January. Uh, He showed up to the U.S. Open without a lot of form and ended up beating Hercotch. Hercotch was not doing all that that well. But, I mean, he looked really out of shape at the U.S. Open, and he's so talented, he still made the fourth round. I mean, it was a great U.S. Open, considering his uh, his fitness levels, honestly. Uh, and now he's playing the Orleans Challenger this week, and he's in the semis. So, yeah, I mean, what can I say about Draper? I think when he has a fully healthy year, he will be a top 15 player easily. Like, the first time he plays a full season, he will end the year in the top 15. That's my opinion. Nakashima's kind of had setbacks, unfortunately. He has had a lot of injury issues. Not looking great physically. You know, just the athletic side of things and the return of serve. The return of serve is a real challenge for him. So, he's hit a bit of a wall here, but, you know, he's still a very solid player. He's definitely going to have a great career. The question for Nakashima is... Will he be a top 20 player at any point? And I I think that is still a a real question. I still have a lot of questions uh, about that because he's very, very solid all around. But there are some holes. There are some weaknesses. And there is also kind of just a lack of firepower with Nakashima. 
Yuri Lahechka, he's had a great year. He's been terrific at the majors in particular. Uh, and certainly that's a guy who you may have seen for the first time at the next-gen finals, which kind of foreshadowed this big 2023 where he's been especially he's been especially good at the majors. He's got two fourth rounds at majors, Wimbledon and the Australian Open. Tons of firepower. Uh, needs to kind of increase his steadiness and, and hopefully start to round out the edges of his game. He is quite stiff, robotic, not a lot of variety there. But hey, unbelievable ball striker, tier one power. He's going to do really great things. Haven't seen much of uh, Chun Shin Seng, the player from Taipei. Haven't seen much of him. Dominic Stricker, of course, had the, the breakout moment at the U.S. Open. I hope that he builds on that. I've talked about him. I, I love his game. Great server. Big forehand, especially when he's he gets to set his feet. Uh, flat backhand that presents some, some issues on its own. I do think that for his size, he's a good, a good mover, a good athlete. And he, he volleys really, really well. So there's very little with Stricker that, that I... I look, I look at his technical his technical skills. There's not a lot of areas where I, I dock points, honestly. Uh, Francesco Pissarro, I haven't seen much from. Uh, but Matteo Arnaldi, I have. And Arnaldi, I can already tell, is going to be a talent maximizer. Moves very well. Competes very well. And uh, it's just going to be about the weapon development for Ar Arnaldi. But, you know, he, he is a pretty good ball striker, too. He's, he's got a lot going for him. He's got variety, too. Arnaldi can volley. Arnaldi has a drop shot. That's a really well-developed player, Matteo Arnaldi. Like, his coaches did a great job. Uh, I don't know. You know, he's a little bit small now. He's not very physical uh, in terms of, like, the power. Uh, I'm really curious to see. Does he fill out into his body? Does he start to develop a big serve, a big forehand? If he does, it's going to be really good. Let's end on this one. It is from Steven. I think this year's Laver Cup really hit home how the event doesn't know what it wants to be, an exhibition or a legitimate competition. I think it's an exhibition, and I didn't watch a second of it live for what it's worth, but let's just assume it wants to be a real competition. How could the tournament go about becoming that? Should there be a qualification standard? Example, be one of the top six North Americans or Europeans. If you can't go, then the next player up based on ranking. Should there be any rankings points so that something is at stake for each individual player? Would love to hear your ideas if you have any. Thanks for all the great work. Look, great question because at the end of the day, I didn't talk about the Felix Monfils incident. Uh, for Monday match analysis last week, but I could have because it was one of the most interesting moments of the week where Laver Cup, and again, I, I hate to sound super negative with my coverage of Laver Cup because I like it. Like, I want it to succeed. I think it will succeed. I think it can succeed. I like it. Uh, but there were some serious issues here, or there are some serious issues. And, you know, this Felix Monfils incident was one moment where Laver Cup was kind of caught with its pants down. You know, in the sense that it is a little bit of an in-between situation. Like, what what is this here? Are we playing an exhibition or are we playing real tour matches? Because the ATP decided that it counts towards your record. 
It counts towards the official head-to-heads and your win-loss record for the year. I've always hated that. Like, if you're not going to play a third set, then that's not a tennis match. Sorry, it's not. To the point where, like, if I'm, if I'm commentating, right, if I'm calling a match for, you know, for Tennis Channel and I'm looking at a head-to-head, let's say the Felix Novak head-to-head, and I say that, oh, Felix beat Novak last year, I'll never just leave it at that. I have to say, but it was Laver Cup, right? That, it was especially bad when coaching was illegal, right? Pre-2022, or I guess it was pre-2023, when coaching was illegal and Laver Cup, a huge part of it was coaching, and we were still counting it. And it's like, what? How are these matches that should count? Made no sense. So I've always had an issue with that. But I think, you know, there are deeper rooted things here. Like you talk about what players are invited. Ultimately, what Monfils, if you're Gail Monfils, and ultimately I was kind of on his side, if I, if I have to take sides uh, based on what happened. And I'm, I'm kind of assuming that everybody saw what happened, but essentially Monfils was clowning around and Felix was like, are you going to give him a time violation? My God, he's... He's, you know, playing all these all these antics in between points, and Felix was getting upset with, with the showmanship and the antics that was disrupting the pace of play. So, you know, they kind of had a little bit of a tiff about it. Put yourself in Gail Monfils' shoes. Here you are, you're not even a top 100 player, and you are invited to Laver Cup. If you're Monfils, you know why you got invited. You didn't get invited to Laver Cup because you give Team Europe the best chance to win. They could have found a better player. I'm sorry. Gail knows that. Gail even said that. I don't feel bad saying that. They could have found a better player. So when they say, Gail, we want you to come play Laver Cup for Team Europe, Monfils understands the assignment. He is getting that invitation because he is one of the great entertainers in the history of tennis. He is one of the great showmen in the history of tennis. So he shows up to Laver Cup understanding very well what they want him to do, what they want him to bring, even if they didn't say anything. He understands that. He knows that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be there. So that's why Monfils was having fun with it. He knows why he's there. But Felix, he thought he was playing a real match. That's kind of the problem with Laver Cup. It, it has that little in-between feeling where you don't really know what it is. I, I would like it to just be an exhibition. An exhibition where the best come together and they play against each other in a team format. And they will be very, very competitive. As long as you're getting the best... They're going to be very competitive. They're going to want to win. There's no reason um, to try to make it count extra in any way or to try to make it a part of a tour. Forget all that. You don't need that to make it interesting, compelling, and competitive, right? If you put the very best and, and put them just in this unique team format and just say, like, this is a very, very exclusive team event where we get the best in the world 
and they're going to play against each other. That's all you need. You do not need to incorporate any of this other kind of legitimizing factors like rankings points or official stats uh, to, to try to make it count more. You just don't need it. Labor Cup, in my opinion, should be an exhibition through and through. And that doesn't make it any lesser as an event. And that doesn't mean the players are going to want to win uh, any less, in my opinion. They'll still want to win. Um, so yeah, I'm on. I'm I'm kind of more on on Gail's side there. I mean, at the end of the day, let's lighten up here, right? All right, that's all I got. Um, I will have Monday match analysis uh, at the conclusion of of the week, probably focusing on Beijing, uh, but I'm sure giving some love to some of the other uh, some of the other stuff going on this week. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is built to take you further off the beaten path. It has 9.5 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, plus off-road wheels, rugged all-terrain tires, and advanced dual-function X mode to help you get through deep snow, gravel, and mud. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. Adventure elevated. Visit Subaru.com wilderness to explore the family of rugged Subaru Wilderness models. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.